Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm talking with James McBride. His novel, Deacon King Kong, was published in March. James received a National Book Award for his New York Times bestseller, The Good Lord Bird, which was turned into a miniseries on Showtime this year. His memoir, The Color of Water, has sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. And his latest book, Deacon King Kong, is also a bestseller and an Oprah Book Club pick. Deacon King Kong is about a man living in a housing project in South Brooklyn during the late 60s. He serves as a faithful deacon at his local church, and he's a raging alcoholic. His name is Cuffy Lambkin, but pretty much everyone calls him Sportcoat, and a few call him Deacon King Kong, mostly behind his back. King Kong is the name of his favorite moonshine. One day, without much warning, he shoots a young drug dealer who works in the projects, setting off a long chain of events that rock his community and reverberate outside of it as well. James, congratulations on the novel, and thanks so much for coming on Read More again to talk about your work. Well, uh, well, thank you very much, and it's nice to be here. How have you been doing during quarantine? Well, um, it, it, you know, you have to be careful. I wear my mask all over. Um, I, I go out, you know, quite a bit. I, I try to move around like I normally do. Um, I, I run a program at my church. We do that online mostly, so we've used the time to fix up the church, and uh, I teach at NYU. I teach in person. And, uh, you know, I move around. I just, you know, I ride my bike. I just, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like, you know, go kiss the bus driver. You know, I just, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't give high fives out anymore. But I, I, I'm okay. Uh, you know, some people's response to this has been, uh, you know, everyone's response is different. You know, for me, I, I, um, actually, I, I think I had it already. So, in fact, I know I did. So, it doesn't make me immune, but. I'm careful, and you know, I, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I just try to be smart. Have you been writing this out in the city, or where have you? Mostly, <clears throat> mostly in the city. You know, I, I go back and forth to my house in New Jersey and my my apartment in Brooklyn. So most of the time, I'm uh, I'm in Brooklyn, but. Um, you know, it's everywhere you go, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, so, uh, you know, it, look, things are looking up. I mean, uh, you know, we we just have to keep living. You know, either you, either that or you stay inside. And you know, look, my work is inside anyway, in terms of the writing and the reading and the you know a lot of the research. It's been hard to research because the libraries aren't. Um, they have limited hours, or you know, you can't get in. Or, you know, the papers you need to see aren't available because there's no one to show you where they are or or allow you to ferret through them. So you're a little handicapped, but I, I'm not complaining. I mean, I you know, the problem really is for so many other people who have been affected by the COVID. You know, especially in my church. You know, we had two people pass away and. Some of the parents of the kids were really scared, and they still haven't appeared. You know, they don't, they don't, they just, they won't even, like, they just won't respond. They just want to stay inside you know, until it's all over. So it's, and it, you know, economically, it's really hurt 
a lot of my friends and a lot of businesses, but you know, we just have to try to I try to be mindful of, you know, where I shop and what I do so I can help those who, you know, small businesses that need my money, you know. Um, but you know, I'm I'm I, I we have leadership in this country now and we're speaking now after the election. So, you know, we I'm I'm very excited about what's ahead and I I'm very hopeful. Uh, in fact, I'm certain that things will will improve after we get through this difficult period. Okay, well, let's just jump in there and start talking about Deacon King Kong. What was it like for you when Oprah called? <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you, there's no rehearsal for that sort of thing, you know. It was great. I mean, I didn't know. I don't pick up my phone very often, you know, uh, especially if I don't know who's calling. I just won't pick up and and I only basically I don't talk on the phone in the morning at all because that's when I get you know most of my work done. So the publisher kept calling me and saying, you know, that someone from the Oprah magazine really need they need to fact check a story. They're going to call you and you know after seven and you you really have to pick up because they they're trying to get this story done. And so that's why I picked up the phone and um, and it was her. It was so funny, you know. I knew who it was right away. <laughs> you know, I knew who I could tell by the voice, you know, and so yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty shocked. But it was nice, believe me. It's a nice thing that you know to happen to a writer, any writer, even me. <laughs> you know, so it was good. Sport coat or Deacon King Kong is such an endearing character. Despite his drinking, he's a faithful member of his church. He's beloved in the community. He's sort of a jack-of-all-trades. He knows everything there is to know about plants. And he used to coach a neighborhood baseball team that really helped the young people around him. How did this character first come to you? Well, he just evolved. You know, characters kind of evolve when you when you play with them in your mind. You know, you, you want to get to... You know, sport coat sport coat story is really about a man and his wife, you know, and a man and a boy. Um, you know, the man being sport coat, the boy being the drug dealer, and the, and the wife being sport coat's wife. And I didn't, you know, I wanted to intertwine these these love stories, if you will, in a way that showed how much love exists in a community that I know a lot about. And that has been very good to to me and to my family. And this is a community that, very despite the the blitz of media that surrounds us, is very poorly understood. And I think, in some ways, doesn't even understand itself. It doesn't stand. It doesn't understand its own its own sense of culture and power. The things that made it, you know, that made it strong and, and that continue to bind it together. So. Look, everybody has a sport coat, um, no matter what their race or gender or, or upbringing. You know, someone, someone, everyone has an uncle who you know shows up at Christmas and takes out their teeth and you know does you know, wacky stuff. And <laughs> so I, I, you know, and these are characters that I just love because they're real and um, and they're people I relate to. So I, you know, he he just evolved. I mean, the the drinking part of it was. Uh, that's just part and parcel of of the life that so many people who are who live on the bottom rail or or near the bottom rail. That's how they live, and so 
um, I wanted to show a character of, of great sympathy, but also who, someone who was really funny and, and fun to be around. I can't write books about people I don't really like, you know. Well, the novel is so funny, James, that I laughed out loud reading it, and I can't remember the last time I did that. I mean, maybe I'm just reading stuff that's too serious, but there's also this great rhythm to your writing that really makes it fun to read. I know that in addition to being a writer, you're also an accomplished musician. Do you feel like some of your musicality comes into play when you write? Well, you know, I tell young musicians all the time that music is not a good way to make a living, but music is a good way to live. And, uh, you know, it, it really, it, it you know, the, the improvisatory quality of music and the, the, you know, the intellectual demands that jazz places on the player, or any music really that places on the player, really helps you structure your stories properly if if it's used right, you know, in your mind. Because, if, you know, in music, if you're playing in a certain key or you're doing a certain passage, if you're playing a certain key in a jazz song or you're playing a certain passage in classical music or you're playing, you know, some rock and roll and there's a certain line that has to happen, you know, oftentimes it has to happen where it's supposed to happen. You know, if it's in bar three, it just has to be there. And so with with story as well, you know, you have you know things have to happen logically. You can't just, you know, young writers often have stories that begin with you know, well the guy got up and then he he played drums and he threw the drums out the window and then he jumped out the window. Well, just you know, getting up is an act, playing the drums is an act, and jumping out the window is an act, and all of those acts have consequences. So you you know, if you structure your story properly, you. You don't you don't have your characters moving around all the time because they have to be motivated to move and to to do things. There has to be some sort of drive to that that scene and that character. So there's a structural element that you have to keep together in your mind. Otherwise, you're just writing. You're just like blogging, you know. So yeah, the short answer is yes. Music does you know it does help um, helps me structure my 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 writing and keep it keep it closer to the bone and more honest with with less fat, I hope. Despite all the humor in the novel, you also acknowledge the pain all of these characters have experienced. So we learn that the pastor's wife feels like her husband doesn't know her. Sportcoat has never gotten over his mom's death. And everyone in the neighborhood is worried about the hard drugs that have come in and the crime that brings. Was it tough for you as you were writing to balance these things out? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> no, because I wasn't writing about those things. Those things are just part of the composite of a person's life. So, you know, if you see a person walking down the street as a writer, not as a, as, as a human being, but just as a writer, and you're trying to, to draw a composite of that character. You don't just go to the fact that, like, he or she is divorced and they're single, 
or that he or she just lost their job, or he or she's really rich and they drive a, you know, like a Tesla or something, <laughs> or they drive a Tesla and can't afford it, you know. But what what you what you're doing is you're looking to the motivation of why that character is there in the first place, and if during the course of that, uh, you know, word picture that you're drawing when you have that character in action, some of the things that in his or her history come out that the reader knows that the other characters in the piece either know or don't know, it helps. Um, but if you if you just start writing about that thing, then you're just writing a you know something that's depressing. I don't really like depressing books because, I mean, what's the point? I mean, well, I mean, I, I understand why they're important, but I just can't spend a whole lot of time with, yes, yeah, Sport Coat, you know, he never did get over his mother's death, but it, you, you you make the point and then you move, you know. Um, you don't make the point and then drill into it. Now, there's some writers who can do that, and they do it with extraordinary efficiency and and brilliance even. I'm just not, I'm not one of those who likes to, to tarry on that kind of thing. Uh, you know, um, if, if I, if I don't have to. This book has so many characters and so many colorful characters with names like soup, bum bum, hot sausage, the elephant, pudgy fingers, light bulb, and so on. As you're writing, was it tough to juggle all of these people in your head? And if so, what did you use to keep everybody straight? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I, I I didn't have to feel like I had to juggle them. I once once the you know once the initial part of the book started to roll out, then it, it's all about you know who. What character needs to tell, whose point of view will you take to tell that piece of it in order to have the, you know, comedic or dramatic or, or a thematic effect that you want to have at that particular point. So I didn't have any problem keeping up with the characters because, because all of them are attached to different elements in the book. I mean, you know, Soup is a, he's an anomaly. He's, you know, he's he's sort of part of the, Hispanic or Latino part of the story, if you will, um, and you know, you just um, you spend a lot of time thinking about. Once you get rolling, you spend more time thinking than writing. The writing part is for me is easy. It's the the thinking part that's hard. You know, um, <laughs> that's the truth. I mean, uh, I just can't think. You know, I mean, the thinking, the figuring out how to stay with the main character as he or she drives towards the back of the book is, is always a problem. Like Herman Melville, when he wrote Moby Dick, you know, he spent several chapters just talking about whales. He just stops the story, and he just burns a lot of ink talking about whales. And it's compelling because you're there. You want to see what happens next. Um, but it does become tedious. You know, You don't want to get hung up that way. Sometimes the reader needs a break, though. You know, if a character's just going on and on you're from that, you know, from that character's perspective, the reader just needs something fresh, someone fresh to tell the story to carry it along for a few pages or even a few chapters if necessary. I mean, Jim Harrison would change from first person to third person back to first. I mean, he could just—he was just such a good writer, you know. 
Um, some people can do it. I'm not. I'm, but I, I, I wouldn't. I can't do that. But you know, it is important to have a fresh perspective on the series of incidents that that are tied together to create that amorphous thing known as plot. The Causes Project, where Sportcoat and his friends live, were initially built to house Italian dock workers. But now the neighborhood is primarily full of black people from down south and people of various races from the Caribbean. There's a tension there, but also in many cases highlighted in the novel, a sense of cooperation. You touch on this covering every community. An Italian family plays a prominent role in the novel, along with a cop who's Irish. What is it you like about covering these intersections among different groups in the city? Well, first of all, that's that was New York in, in those years. And secondly, um, it's easy to talk about, you know, the differences between people. But it's much more difficult and ultimately more satisfying to talk about the commonalities. Um, I just went to a funeral yesterday in Jersey of a friend of mine who died of, of uh, he just died of cancer. He was a he was a Vietnam veteran, and you know he was a very conservative guy. I mean, all most of the people, a lot of people I live in Jersey are Trumpers, you know, big time. Um, but they're nice people. I mean, they're the kind of people that you know that you like, and so you know that you know it's not about oh we have to understand. I don't really feel that way. You know, I mean, if that's how he feels, that's that's just his business. But I was really shaken when he died. You know. I was really, it shook me hard because he worked so hard, you know, and he was so strong. I just don't understand how someone works like that, and then God says it's time for them to go home. I, You know, so I, I don't really, I don't really care too much about the level of dialogue that has been allowed to seep into our consciousness. I just don't bother with it, you know. We won the election, that's it now. Let's get over it, done. But it doesn't mean that, you know, we kicking people around and showing them, you know. I just don't believe in that. No matter how hard somebody else kicks, there's always somebody in their past or somebody around them that has has good common sense. And a lot of that, I try to put that in my books, you know. And it, Otherwise, because hate is just too hard to write about, and it's too, it doesn't inspire creativity. It just doesn't really... It, hate in literature is hard to maintain, just like it is in real life. It takes an enormous amount of energy to keep that train running. You got to have two or three guys shoving coal in that furnace. Otherwise, it just it, the, the thing just dies out. But love, you know, love doesn't take much. You know, a handshake, you know, a wave, you know, a what's going on? How's it going? It doesn't take much. It can move a lot. So, um. So I went to that funeral, and I was sad. I really was. I didn't go to his house and all that, but I felt bad about it. I, it it's taken me a little bit to get over it. I think partly because he was such a good carpenter. He worked so hard. He he liked people, period. And, um, you know, he left behind a, a really nice family. And, you know, and I don't know what their politics I don't care. But um, so in my books, these are the people I write about. And they're people that I admire and like. Now, I'm not saying I like it when somebody kills a black man for nothing, you know. 
but I don't waste time. I, what's the solution? You know, if you have solutions, then, you know, people like Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd, if you have solutions, they didn't die for nothing. But if you have no solutions and you're yelling and screaming, you're not helping anybody. You're not helping them. I mean, I was I was affected by the the death of Breonna Taylor, especially because she just seems such like such a nice person. I know so many young women like her, but you know, that was God's plan for her. And I, while I don't like it, you know, if I don't do my job in my own world, then she died for nothing. So it makes me teach harder. It makes me run my program in Brooklyn better. It makes me not give up when this COVID thing is kicking around. So when I ride my bike around New York, you know, I, I ride with purpose because of these people. They paved the way so that I could do what I need to do. I don't like to sit around and talk about it. It's it's all in my books. We can get along, and here's proof. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your friend's passing. And I think what you were saying about him speaks to what we see in your novel, where there are characters who you would think might not be friends, but somehow they find a way to get along. Well, you know, it just has to do with respect for people. Um, you know, I, I there's, there's too much show and not enough respect. And so I, I feel that, um, you know, when someone feels they're not respected, all kinds of bad things can happen. I mean, that's certainly how African-Americans feel, but they're not the only ones. Um, and so respect is something you show. Um, uh, and if if it hurts you to show it, then just be hurt, but show it anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, I was, I was, I was, I was pretty, it, I was, you know, I just was, was really kind of bothered by that, you know, because the guy worked so hard, he, he you know, it's hard when you see someone who's only 71, they worked all their life, and then they, you know, they find out they have cancer, and a week later, a month later, they're gone. And look, we had, you know, we had that at our church as well, you know. I, mean, I can tell you, we can all trade those kinds of stories. I don't think that one got to me a little bit because um, I just don't know because I just enjoyed laughing with him. He was so funny. He was a funny guy, you know. And he was a strong guy, and, you know. You know, he, he was a combat soldier, and he didn't bore you with his, you know, combat story. He was just a, <laughs> he was a wonderful person. But, you know, God has a plan for all of us, and, um, uh, you know, that that's, you know, that, that's it, you know. That, that's how it works. I mean, uh, you know, I've played many funerals at my church, my church for many, you know, many, for several wonderful people. And after a day or two, I feel better, you know, because I, I think God heals everything. And, uh, you know, we all have a purpose. And so you just you just keep, you know, you keep moving on. A lot of your novel revolves around the neighborhood church, Five Inns Baptist. And you also dedicate this novel to God's people, all of them. The people who go to this church aren't particularly self-righteous as church people are characterized sometimes. 
but the institution helps to hold this community together. Why did you want to have the church fill that role in this community, despite all the craziness that's going on right outside the church doors? Well, you know, I believe in the black church. Um, I, I, don't, I don't. I'm not a fan of these mega churches. You know, with these with these giant choirs, with the drummer going in the Broadway show, uh, Broadway show sermons and stuff. I can't. I really just. I, I don't go to those kinds of places, you know. But the small black churches in the neighborhood that you know that have held up a lot of the New York that I knew and know um, were just wonderful places, and they, you know, they were they were like libraries. They were like the last line of defense before, you know, all hell breaks loose for, for young people, especially, and for families, and for you know, people who have need a place to go can't afford a psychiatrist or a psychologist and they can just shout their pain out. And I think I think churches and black churches in general have been misrepresented in the media in some part because a lot of the characters that come into church are so funny but they're, they're, they're portrayed as bozos and clowns and you know fat women shaking their hips with wigs on going you know you better stop that. You know I just I find that so offensive because it takes an enormous amount of intelligence and, and wit and um, guile to keep a church going. And in my my church, like in a lot of small churches, there's only one or two people who really do everything. Everybody else, you know, most of the others just show up on Sunday. And my church is pretty dedicated. It has some several dedicated people, who, and I admire them because they're the people who hold the community together. Like, Breonna Taylor was the kind of person, you know, talking about her, she was the kind of person, if she was in your church, she would be someone who, if I'm going to run a prayer service on Wednesday or tutoring on Thursday, if she says she's going to be there at 7 o'clock, she'd be there at 7 o'clock. Now, I didn't even know, I just read about it, but that's the kind of person, that's the kind of people that make a church good. And that's why it's hard to see someone like that die the way she did, you know. So, you know, I think these institutions are important, as flawed as they are, and they are very flawed. But I can't think of anything else that's better. So why not show them in the way that they are, so that people see what they see that these people, that the people who inhabit them really, really care, and get no credit for it. Um, you know. I, that a lot of my success um, has to do with the fact that you know my mother was and father and stepfather were were, were pretty religious people. My father was a preacher, and you know my mother and father started the church, and you know um, they they you know their sense of religiosity has has served me to this day. But I'm not one of these Bible thumpers, and you know I'm not again whatever religion you are. If that works for you, I'm happy for you. You know, um, and and if you don't have religion, it doesn't ma- it doesn't matter to me. I still believe in you. You know, I'm not one of these people. You know, if you don't have Jesus, you you know, you're gonna go to hell. And, and I don't waste time with that nonsense. I, I just don't bother with it. Well, as someone who 
grew up in uh, small churches like that, I definitely uh, know what you're talking about, and I appreciated that depiction. I could I know those people at Five Ends Baptist. Um, James, your work has been brought to the screen in the past. As I mentioned earlier, it's happening now with the Good Lord Bird. As I was reading this, I started thinking about how it might be brought to the screen. I mean, I could see David Allen Greer playing sport coat. Uh, do you think someone will want to bring this novel to the screen? I, I, that's going to happen, you know. Um, a, a production company in L.A. has already, you know, uh, optioned it, and, and I don't know what they're doing, you know, in terms of, I don't think they're even at the point where they're, you know, casting or anything like that. And everything is sort of on COVID hold out there in California. But I, I'm, I feel certain they can probably make a go of it. Who they cast, and you know, and who it—that's, that's you know, that's out of my, that's out of my, that's not my department. You know, I, I I'd like to see it, you know find a wider audience but if it ends right here I can say I've been blessed beyond measure so I'm not really um, so that you know the short answer to your question is yeah David Allen Greer would be great he's he's a fantastic um, fantastic actor I remember seeing him in Soldier Story years ago Um, he was so he was so that that film had so many talented um actors in it, black actors, black male actors who, uh, some of whom never really got um, the recognition they deserved. One, Denzel was in it, Denzel Washington, and, with, you know, several, a couple of the really good ones, I mean, a couple of the main ones died, and but it was really well written. Charles Fuller, who uh, was a professor at Temple in Philly, I believe, wrote the original play. Excellent piece of work. Well, now I want to talk to you about what you like to read and the authors you enjoy. Has there been any particular author or type of book you've been reading a lot during quarantine? I'm afraid I don't have a very good answer for that because most of what I read, what's most of what I mean now, reading now involve, involves uh, New York in the early 1900s. I've just become fascinated with that period with uh, with vaudeville and the minstrel shows and uh, the way New York evolved, but I haven't really come up with a story yet. I'm just trolling, and that's how I, I work. I just read. I just read all day. I mean, it's a wonderful job I have. I just have to read and practice. I mean, that's like a. It's like a dream, you know. But I, you know, in terms of like writers and. and you know that that are selling you know commercial books. Uh, I, I'm not reading much of that. Um, in fact, I'm not reading any of it because I I don't want to know what anybody else is doing. <laughs> I'm just concerned about what I'm doing. But I, I you know I love all the great writers. You know Toni Morrison and uh, you know Edwige Dandicott is right down there in Florida. She's a fantastic writer. I think there's no better writer in terms of the. African American experience with regard to Haitian people and Haitian women than uh, uh, Dandicott. I mean, she's just so good, so funny. She's so smart, and she's funny, and she's 
but you know, I mean, um, uh, geez, I mean, Dave Barry is down there. He's very funny. There, there are a bunch of you know writers that I I enjoy, but I'm not reading anybody right now. That's you know, I'm just reading history books. A lot of us have been quarantining with our families for most of the year, as we've already discussed, because of the pandemic. If you could spend this time with any writer, living or dead, who would you choose and why? That's a difficult question to answer. Mm. Um, if I could choose this time to spend with any writer, why? Um, I don't know. I, I suppose... Uh, probably William Shira, who wrote um, the rise and fall of the, uh, the the Third Reich. He was a historian who was a commentator. Was a he was a, a radio reporter for, for CBS who got trapped in who got found himself in Nazi Germany as uh, Hitler's. Um, uh, Hitler began his rise, and the Third Reich began there. The Rise to Power, and he wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and I, th- I think that's the name of the book. I've read it two or three times. I can't even recall the title right, but he was a fascinating man. Uh, above and beyond that book, which is a great book, um, and really, really pertinent to now, today. But after he he, he wrote that book, he wrote several others. And um, he was an interesting man. Um and his life story was interesting, and I, I, you know, he he knew a lot of he knew a lot of or knew of a lot of people that I that I like to know about. I mean, obviously, you know, look if Ralph Ellison or Tony Morrison are available, you know, I, I sure, but they might not want to talk to me. <laughs> but I got the I got the sense that you know William Shira is the guy who likes to talk, <laughs> so that's why uh, he'd be you know he'd be the guy I choose or the writer I choose. Are you, you mentioned you're doing a lot of research right now. Are you working on an, anything, a new project yet, or are you in the no, process? No, just... no, that's just my process, you know. Uh, it, uh, the writing doesn't take me long. The research takes me a long time. But I don't know what I'm writing about yet. You know, I know I'm interested in the development of, of New York, but, but you know, and what way? Who's telling it, and why we should care? I don't. I'm, I haven't found a way in to do that. All of my books, you know, um, are created that way, pretty much. You know, I just gorge information until you know, until something, you know, character just sits up in the desk drawer and says, "Let me out," and then, and then away we go. Well, James McBride, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your work. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I I hope I've answered all of your questions to your satisfaction. (laughs) uh, You definitely have. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you very much. Take care. Okay, you too. Earlier this month, James took part in the first all-virtual Miami Book Fair. He was in conversation with fellow writer Leonard Pitts. You can go to MiamiBookFairOnline.com to check that out. 
You can also find out how to win a free copy of Deacon King Kong on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support James and the show through buying the book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.